0: Hi, this is Marco Rodriguez. You may remember me from my two appearances in Star Trek The Next Generation as Paul Rice in the Arsenal of Freedom and Glyn Tilla from The Wounded. And you're listening to Trek Untold.
1: Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On today's episode, we're speaking with character actor Marco Rodriguez, a Hollywood veteran whose first on-screen role happened all the way back in 1980. He's done it all on the stage and on screen, and even appeared in a bunch of video games, and of course, he happened to cross paths with Star Trek. Marco appeared twice in The Next Generation, first in the Season 1 episode Arsenal of Freedom as a Starfleet captain named Paul Rice who isn't exactly what he seems to be. He followed that up in Season 4 as Glintilla in The Wounded, alongside Marco Limo and Bob Gunton in a standout episode from that season, which was also the first time we ever saw a Cardassian on screen. And as it turns out, Marco also nearly had a few other Trek roles that I think are going to surprise you. Star Trek, however, is just a small footnote in Marco's career, which spans over a hundred roles, including appearances in TJ Hooker, Hill Street Blues, MacGyver, Walker, Texas Ranger, Frasier, Seinfeld, The Crow, L.A. Law, The District, Sliders, Nash Bridges, NYPD Blue, Million Dollar Baby, Fast and Furious, Eastbound and Down, Inhumans, Veronica Mars, and many, many more. Now, I want to make a note for my YouTube audience. In this episode, you're going to see an outfit change from Marco and I. No, it's not for any dramatic purposes. We're not doing any skits or anything like that. It's because we weren't able to do the interview in one sitting due to some time constraints. But Marco was kind enough to come back and do a second part with me to make sure we got everything we needed in our chat. So as you can imagine, we cover a lot of ground in this discussion, not just about Star Trek. So with that said, let's get to know Marco Rodriguez and learn all about his time on Trek and his continuing career in Hollywood. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com stores slash Trek Untold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening that you like it and other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow. It helps us get better guests and helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. All right, and welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen today, we're speaking with Marco Rodriguez. Marco, how's it going today?
0: Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: It's good to be able to talk to you today. You've been in so many things. Like I was looking at your resume, and you know, just seeing your face again, it just reminds me of so many different things I've seen you in. But running down the resume, you've been in so many things for so many decades too. Uh, a lot of stuff we're going to talk about today. But first things first, I got to ask you the question I ask all of our guests here. And Marco, oh. what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, earliest
0: memory of Star Trek uh, goes back to the '60s for the original Star Trek series. Uh, I, I remember. Uh, you know, at first, I, I really wasn't a Star Trek fan, but uh, I would watch it um, after school. Of course, uh, Fridays used to come out and um, it was good because I associated it with being the last day of school <laughs> for the week. So, um, yeah, uh, those are my earliest memories of I it. Mean, I know all the kids at school were really into it.
1: You know, they they were all Trekkies. <laughs> Did you consider yourself a Trekkie or you're just more of a casual fan?
0: No, I was a casual fan. I, I really wasn't into the whole sci-fi thing at the time. Uh, I was more into the uh, the World War II stuff. You know, they had all the the combats and all the, you know, all those World War II series during that
1: time. Combat's a good show. I don't think we've ever mentioned combat before in this podcast. I'm glad you're the first person that has. That's <laughs> a good, good show.
0: Okay. Yeah. They, well, they, they still uh, show it, the series. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. You can find it everywhere now.
1: So let's take a jump back into the past here. So can you tell us, uh, where were you born? Who were your parents? And what did you want to be when you grew up?
0: Well, okay. I'm, I'm from LA. I'm an LA boy. Uh, was, uh, brought up in the San Gabriel Valley. Uh, there's a mission out here, the San Gabriel mission, uh, which actually uh, recently suffered a, um, uh, a fire. We live very close to it. And, um, I got a brother and, uh, Um, large extended family, Hispanic family, and uh, ever since I was a kid, um, I kind of had an idea that I wanted to get into some kind of performance. I I was not too clear as to which way I was going to go. My dad was a singer, and uh, so he was in front of people all the time, and um, he would, uh, you know, he was an itinerant singer, so he would travel a lot, and uh, we would see him perform, and I, I think I caught the bug probably from watching him uh, be in performance mode, and and that's how I began to actually uh, start to do some uh, skits and plays in uh, my own backyard, and started to invite you know the locals, the kids, and the family, and charge them what twenty five cents or so to come and see our plays. That's how I that was that's how I got started.
1: So a young entrepreneur as well as an actor. That's a smart way to do it.
0: Yeah, well, the only way to go. (laughs) Make your own shows. Yeah.
1: Something we've talked about a lot with other actors uh, who have come on the show is they said, like, if they watched Star Trek as a kid, uh, they liked seeing themselves on it. So we've had a lot of people of color who have said, you know, how important Uhura was. Uh, But looking back on Star Trek and even, you know, just a lot of other shows in the 60s, 70s, there weren't a ton of Hispanic actors on screen. So uh, where did you draw inspiration from?
0: Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there weren't very many role models at the time, uh, very few. I don't think that that was a big issue for me because I just followed my passion. And, um, I just thought, you know, do what you love and, uh, the money will follow at some point. And I didn't let that become a deterrent. Um, now I, I was familiar with some of the, uh, some of the talent of, of that day, like Eric Estrada and, uh, you know, even Ricardo Montalban, uh, with his show fantasy Island. So there were, there were a few that were out there. Um, but not as many as there should have been. I don't think they, they had a habit of using, uh, non-Hispanic, uh, actors for a lot of Hispanic roles. And so, um, I kind of thought, wow, that that's got to change at some point. And and little by little, it began to change. So, um, yeah, um, but I didn't let that become a deterrent.
1: So when did you decide to pursue acting as a profession and and where did you go to improve those skills?
0: Well, let's see, I I started in high school to to do plays. And, um, you know, we weren't limited to just uh, uh, Hispanic roles. I played some classic parts. I played Paul Verrill in uh, Born Yesterday. I, I did some great parts in, in high school and um and from there I thought you know I could do anything. So I I decided that um, you know, I'll pursue it in college. So I, I went to USC and I got I got struck with uh, a a dose of practicality and um I thought, well, how am I going to actually make a living out of this? And I think a lot of it was people around you telling you get a real job. You know, you're really not going to get anywhere uh, in in this business. It's just too much, too much competition. And so um, I decided I'd become a, a teacher. And there was always been a, sort of a social conscience um, part of me as well that uh, uh, kind of Wanted to help the community, and I thought, well, teaching is is a good thing, and and so I studied Spanish and uh, uh, education, and uh, I, I got into the LA Unified School District under a bilingual credential, and I started teaching there. Um, very short lived, though, because I I found that it really wasn't for me. I have a lot of respect for the teaching profession, and it's never really left me. I through the years, even, even as an actor, I, I uh, became a teaching artist, uh, at times, but back then, uh, I really felt that, that, that was not what I wanted my profession to be full-time. So, um, I decided I would, uh, pursue acting. Uh, I had already finished USC, graduated with a degree, uh, and I decided to go back to study acting. And I went to, uh, Pasadena City College, they had a great uh, acting program there, had some great uh, mentors, instructors there, Um, and um, did a lot of plays there as well. Um, And uh, from there, I thought, well, let's see how I can launch into the the professional realm and um, began doing what they call equity waiver plays in L.A., 99-seat theaters um, where you would do plays. I did, uh, I did some, some classics. Um, I did a Clifford, Clifford Odette's play in an old theater, uh, in, in, um, uh, Hollywood. I did Hamlet at the old inner city cultural center with Glenn Turman. I did, um, so I, I, I just began to do a lot of theater around town. Uh, so at one point, um, there was a huge play that was happening, uh, at the Mark Taper Forum, a professional house, Uh, and um, I, they actually cast the play, and I didn't get into it initially, Um, but then I uh, continued to be adamant about it, and uh, when they were looking for some understudies, because they were going to take the play to New York, um, I got the understudy to the lead, which was El Pachuco. El Pachuco was one of them, was the main part in this play, and uh, I got my equity card, my union card. That's what you need to start doing, working professionally. Uh, and my career, my professional career, was launched at that point. I did, um, oh, uh, I guess how many perform- over two hundred performances of of the lead in El Pachuco at in in um, at the Mark Taper Forum. Uh, they were going to take me to New York to do the uh, lead there, but to play unfortunately didn't make it in new york It closed so that well that was how i got my foot in the door um what it was through stage actually and then once i was doing the play other professionals from the from hollywood came to see it i got an agent out of it and and then from there the rest as they say is is uh, history um started to work regularly
1: now do you remember what your first professional gig was on a tv show or in a film
0: yeah, I do. It's um, It was called The Baltimore Bullet. Uh, it was a, a feature film starring um, James Coburn and uh, Omar Sharif. I had a couple of good scenes with uh, uh, James Coburn, who was actually a favorite of mine uh, from the 60s. He was in some really classic movies, and, and it was a thrill for me to actually be on a set with him uh he he was of course in the original magnificent 7 with yul Brenner in 1960 um he did uh, all the the
1: um
0: the private eye series, uh series of features um what was it called i think it was that flim um in like flim in like flint yes exactly and um and so to to actually ha- have you know acting scenes with him it was uh i was just like blown away That's and amazing. he shared a lot about his early start in, in the career, in his career. He, uh, did a lot of theater as well. Uh, very personable, very friendly guy, uh, very willing to, to share. And, uh, that to me is, a I I have some
1: really fond memories of, uh, of that first, that first film. Yeah. James Coburn has such a presence on screen too, and anything that he's in always amazing. Yeah, it must've been just such a treat.
0: Oh yeah. Just, just to see him and, and, uh, the charisma, as you said, he has, he projects such he projected such charisma uh and his voice was incredible he had this like deep uh profundo basso voice bass voice you know and um it, so it was <laughs> it was incredible to to be able to work with him
1: and also early on in your career you got a chance to work with another very lum- big luminary in television that was uh carol o'connor and uh, you were on I know an episode of archie bunker's place which was essentially the sequel yeah. to all in the family uh do you remember much about being on that episode?
0: Uh yeah, some. Um uh, it was back in 1981, actually, which is like uh, an eternity ago, but um <laughs> it was I one of California <laughs> It was actually, I think, my fourth uh TV gig that I had. I had just started working in, in films with uh, the Baltimore Bullet in 79. And so this was like two years later. And I was still very much a, a rookie, a novice. And um, I, I remember uh, Carol, uh, he he was uh, such a pro. Um, and this was, uh, some of the shows were done in front of a, of a live audience. This particular show show or scenes that I was in was not. Some Some scenes are filmed before a live audience and some were not. We were supposed to be, I think, a gang of three punks. That were making trouble for him on the subway, and uh, um I remember he took the time to kind of give us some acting pointers um he he was uh he, he was quite a guy I, I remember that uh, and, and to actually be in his presence and being in a scene with him was a real treat as well.
1: So you spent your early time in your acting career, mostly in theater performances. And now you're in you know, your Hollywood career, you're doing stuff on TV and films. Uh, so what did you learn about your acting skills or what did you have to change about your acting abilities to better oh, fit yeah. the format of, you know, live audience looking at you versus a camera lens looking at you?
0: I, I really had to learn, I think, to to tone down uh, my performance, because on stage you have to project a, a character to the back row in a theater. Um, and so, and still remain, you know, uh, believable, but at the same time, you're, it's, it's a very physical art form. Um, in film, you're really, you're still physical, but you're, you're really toning it down and making it very subtle. So, um, the physicality then becomes, it's, it's more of an internal, um, change that you did you go through because the camera will pick up even any any thought that you may have will register through your eyes and the eyes are very important so um just by virtue of uh, of that i had to really begin to uh learn how to work with a camera learn what the camera sees as opposed to what an auditorium full of people would see And it's 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 an art form. Um, Some actors will say, you know, there's really no difference, Um, and in some ways there isn't. The acting is acting. You 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 want to make your character as believable as possible, and you build that on your yourself, what who you are, your your person. You don't you don't try to to create some fake. caricature or, or character you base that on your feelings and your emotions and your experiences those still have to come through uh um on stage but they come through in a in a in a much more subtle fashion on, on film that's the biggest difference I would say
1: so a lot of your early roles unfortunately they're very much kind of one type of thing and this is kind of I think a problem with Hollywood especially at era and we're still seeing it today uh for the most part it looked like a lot of your gigs were Marco Rodriguez, the thug, Marco Rodriguez, the gangbanger kind of thing. Uh, And so, you know, I want to talk to you about another one of your roles, but I just watched the episode. And again, you're basically a street punk kind of character. Uh, And that's TJ Hooker. And of course, we got to talk about TJ Hooker because that's got the William Shatner connection. Uh, So, yeah. So what do you remember about, if anything at all, working with Shatner? And uh, we'll we'll save the discussion for being the street thug again a little bit later on in this interview. But uh, yeah, what do you remember about working with Shatner? Well, um,
0: Shatner was directing that particular episode that I was in. Um, and uh, of course i had some scenes with him as well um, but i i um uh, i really enjoyed working with uh, william shatner he actually had seen the play zoot suit that i was in and uh, it may have had something to do with him actually casting me in this this particular part um because he he spoke to me he was very uh, he he was he was actually thrilled that i was doing this this tj hooker episode um because he had seen this show, as i say and he loved he loved Zoot Suit he loved this particular character and the character i played in this i guess was somewhat similar to this had that that swagger that El Pachuco in in um
1: in the play had so it wasn't uh, i think it was Nia Peoples. she was also in that episode too and she was also in Zoot Suit with you is that right
0: but no actually um Nia was not uh in the play I'm trying to remember if she was in the film at all. No, I don't think she was either. Um, But Nia, I I had worked with Nia actually on, on another project as well, but um,
1: yeah, I mean, uh, she's a terrific actress. Sorry, I meant Julie Carmen. That's who it was. Julie Carmen.
0: Oh, Julie Carmen. Yeah. Julie, Julie Carmen was um, another terrific actress. I remember her in Gloria, as a matter of fact, (laughs) um, she, i'm trying to remember if she was in zoot suit at all i i don't remember i I know she was not in the play uh but as far as the film is concerned i don't i don't think she was unless you saw the film and you remember her in it i <laughs> uh,
1: she did uh she did the off broadway version maybe it was before you were in it or something else so she was doing it in new york oh
0: maybe maybe that's what it was i guess i, I i'm not i'm not uh shatner basically pulled it. everybody
1: who did zoot suit for this episode <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, there was another, I thought you were going to mention this other actor uh, who was in Zoot Suit with me and has remained uh, uh, good friends with me uh, since then. His name is uh, uh, Sal Lopez. And um, Sal uh, played uh, my nemesis, I think, on the uh, on that particular show for T.J. Hooker uh, and uh, had a prominent role in Zoot Suit as well another terrific actor uh, who's, who's been in the business as long as I, we both got our starts together. Um, and, uh, in fact, another, another I was, if I recall correctly, another actor was in that as well. Tony Plana was also in, the, uh, in that particular episode. So there was quite a few, as you say, he, I guess he did cast quite a f- few of that cast that were in the original play.
1: For whatever reason, yeah. it definitely drew his eyes, drew his attention. So good on all you guys for doing that. I mean, uh, so hey, I'm sorry to interrupt you before I can get us a little bit off topic here, but uh, can you give us a little bit more about you know working yeah. with Shatner? Uh, how was he as a director, especially because that's got to be kind of intimidating?
0: Yeah, uh, he he was uh, he, he was he was a good director. He was very precise. I remember uh, we'd come on the set and he had, and of course, this was this is television and. Being that he had quite a history in television, I'm sure that that this is this is what made him the type of director he is. Uh, he was very precise, had us marked out with with all of the uh, marks where we were supposed to go, um, and uh, really, you know, wanted us to stick, be very precise, and stick to to the marks and to the direction that he he would give us. Um, but you know, he was. I, th- I think he was a re- he was a really really good director, and um, I think the episode came out really really nice.
1: And that episode also had another Star Trek connection you might not be aware of. Uh, James Darren was also in the episode with you. I don't remember. Yes, if he, had he any was. Scenes
0: with as, him. as a matter of fact, you're right. D- uh, yeah. Did you actually have scenes with him? Like I didn't him have while? any. I, I don't think I, as I recall. I mean, it's only been like I don't how many decades, but <laughs> I, I, I don't think I did have any. I don't think I don't believe I had any any scenes with James Darren. No. Uh, I think briefly there was a scene at the end with uh, Heather Locklear. She was also in it. And um, and then Adrian Smed, I think he was, he was in it as well.
1: So I think one of the first memories I have of seeing you on screen or anything, and this is a weird one, but I remember seeing you the first time my friend showed me Cobra with Sylvester Stallone and uh, you are the supermarket killer. And again, you know, this is now the third role we've talked about on this episode of the show here today, where it's the street thug, killer, criminal kind of thing. Uh, But Yeah. Working with Stallone, Cobra, what a crazy movie that is to begin with, but uh, what do you remember about Stallone? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. I I
0: remember quite a bit actually. Um, In in fact, um, there was a very famous line in that, that uh, movie, which kind of um, has survived to this day, I think uh, for, for Cobra buffs and for, uh, for Stallone fans, uh, he, he called me the disease in this, uh, this, this movie. And, and I was the supermarket killer, as you said, in the very beginning of the of the film. Um, and they began putting the name, the disease, even after I I worked on the uh, film Cobra, they began putting it on my dressing rooms, the disease. It kind of stuck as a, <laughs> as a nickname for, uh, couple of few years after that after i'd done cobra um but that's where it came from sylvester stallone was uh at at the height i guess of his stardom back then and um so everybody was i remember everybody was in awe of him uh, on the set and um you know he was he was very professional had an entourage of um bodyguards and people around him all the time uh And I remember there was a uh, Romanian director, uh, he's uh, deceased now, Uh, George Cosmatos was the director. He was a a director that, as I said, was from Romania, but could not speak English very well. And so the communication was kind of difficult when he'd want me to do something. uh, He couldn't really communicate it great. So sometimes we... Sometimes he'd he'd get all flustered and start screaming on the set. I remember, and <laughs> he was he was quite a character, uh, uh, William Cosmato's. Um, but the the uh, the film uh, opened at the Grauman's Chinese. I remember at the at the time, and uh, it it got me quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of notoriety being in a play with uh, I, I'm sorry, with in a movie with um, with Sylvester Stallone. Um so it was good for my career at the
1: time. It was good for your career being sh- shot up by Sylvester Stallone. It's such yeah, a weird it, thing to say, it, but it's it, true. Yeah.
0: It, it yeah, it was. It was uh I guess uh it was a it was a great thing to be able to get shot up by by uh Stallone. I uh was a crazed killer that was uh part of a cult or something like that, as I recall. Um and uh, I had um some firearms that I was shooting off uh, shotguns with, um, uh, with some um, loads, full loads. They call them full loads. You get like half loads, quarter loads and full loads. So the full loads are, are, are um, blanks, but they're very, very loud. And um, I remember uh, working a lot with the uh, firearms expert and, and shooting those off shooting at uh, shooting at a lot of food and and a lot of um, cereals and <laughs> you know it was uh it was quite quite interesting
1: uh, marco i've got a really obscure one for you and this is a show i've only learned about while yeah. doing this podcast actually uh that was a detective show starring pat Morita called o'hara and i think you're the second person oh, yeah, on the show yeah. who's been in that show uh do you remember anything about it i, I can't find an episodes of this thing out there anywhere i'm just so curious about what the heck o'hara is
0: well um O'Hara is uh was a um uh police show and it was done like it was only lasted a couple of seasons i think it was uh, you'll see it on IMDB it, it's it started i think with with Pat Morita uh, he was playing i think um uh a lieutenant uh policeman and then it kind of morphed into he was playing a uh, a detective for the second season uh and i came in i think on the i believe it was the second season and uh it also starred uh, another latino actor by the name of uh, richard iniguez uh he he was in it and rachel if i i think her name is ticketon um she was also in it uh they were series regulars and uh in fact i in the episode that was called Jesse, that I, that i was in um i uh, uh co-starred with um another Latina actress uh that went on to Star Trek fame as well. Uh, that was Roxanne Dawson, who um she was just barely starting at the time. And um uh we had um uh, she was playing my girlfriend I remember in this, this particular episode. And um uh I I was the gang banger that was released from prison and tried to get get control of the gang again and uh was up to my old nefarious tricks and uh got into trouble with uh, the law again and um so it it was yes in the in the in the vein of the bad guy i was playing a lot of those guys back then but i thought it was an interesting connection there with star trek because uh, roxanne um would later uh, of course be a a uh, be on the star trek uh series of Voyager.
1: So you got Mr. Miyagi and Lieutenant Torres from Voyager. That's pretty great. That's pretty great days work right there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I always say that this business is a, is a great example of the, the old uh, adage, uh, six degrees of separation, uh, because you never know who you're going to work with and who those people actually work with. And when I think about it, uh, you know, we go back to James Coburn and, and uh, having worked with James Coburn, in, in a, in a 60 degrees separation kind of a way. I, I, I was around Yul Brenner and I was around so many other people because that, that, that connects his, his presence connects with so many other uh, so many other actors that are, you know, icons in the, in the business.
1: So I think uh, one of the roles I also want to talk to you about today is from the crow. You were detective Torres in the crow cult classic, uh, such a interesting experience of a film. I just Rewatched it again for this interview, and it's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, I forgot just what a uh, you know. I, I'm I'm trying to find the words for the crow. It's just like such an experience to watch. That's the best thing I can say about it, uh, not in a bad way, but uh, yeah, just such a unique <laughs> kind of film. Uh, so yeah, you were a lieutenant yeah. or uh, detective Torres rather, and uh, you spent pretty much, I think all of your scenes right. with Ernie Hudson, who's one of my favorites. Uh, I've met him a bunch of times at conventions. That's right. Uh, really, very underrated actor, I feel like. But um, can you tell us about what it's like working with Ernie Hudson? Ernie. Ernie Huds. Actually, I, I worked a couple of
0: times with him, and at one point we actually had the same agent. Um, so yeah, we we kind of had a history together. I I first worked with Ernie in a TV made-for-TV movie called uh, Women of San Quentin, uh, where I played a, an inmate there, and he was an inmate with with the opposite gang in there. And um, and but in the the Crow. Getting back to 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 the Crow. Yes, yeah, so most of my scenes were with him and I was his superior, his uh uh superior officer in the police force there. And that that film was, you know, it it had its it was bittersweet. Uh obviously because um, uh because uh, Brandon Lee um uh, as you're as you're very well familiar with the story, uh was killed as a result of uh a um an errant uh a blank that was fired. Um, and, uh, I remember actually, uh, finishing my part in the show and which was shot in Wilmington, North Carolina and coming home. And then, uh, suddenly a couple of weeks later reading in the paper that, uh, he had been tragically killed. And I was just shocked when I read that. I had met him one time on the set, and, uh shook his hand and he seemed like such a nice such a, such a great kid and um did such a, an incredible job in in that film. And I think uh that film no doubt would have launched a a, a, um, a wonderful career for him had it not been for his untimely death, you know. Um but uh, Ernie Hudson was was a great guy to work with. Um he's a very professional actor and um you know has had quite a quite a lot of uh longevity in his um in his career as well. It's been around a long time.
1: You know, the reason I'm like trying to find words to describe my thoughts on The Crow is because it's like such an underground kind of film that made its way into the mainstream and it's so just dark, gritty, grimy, bittersweet, as you said, was a yes. great word for it. Um just you know, what an interesting movie yeah. to be a part of. It just you know, it feels like a modern noir film in a lot of ways.
0: Yes, it's 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 got a really gothic um feel to it and um the uh the, the characters in that were, you know, some of the most heinous uh <laughs> some of the most uh that gang I'm talking about. In fact, when I originally read for that that film for the director uh, Alex Proyas, uh, he I re- actually read for the part uh that was played by Michael Wincott. It uh, was the main character the guy with a really long hair who did a fabulous job in the in the film uh, he was terrific um and so when he got the part and and i didn't i figured well i i'm not in this film but i got a call from uh the director actually he called me uh, wanted to talk to me uh about doing another part and uh it turned out to be this detective taurus role and he convinced me to to be a part of the project it wasn't as as large of, of a part but um you know the, the 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 script and the the fact that it was being taken from uh, a, a comic book series and make, being made into a film uh, uh they were starting to do that back then uh now with marvel i mean everything's it's it's just become a it's just become a a regular thing to do now But um, back then, that was one of that was one of the first ones that made that transfer from the comic book series to to the uh, to the film. Um, So I was glad I I did the role. Um, It was a it was a good experience. Again, a a bittersweet one, but it was a good one.
1: It's a real genre kind of breaking film as well in just so many ways. Um, And like you mentioned, yeah, I mean, it's a comic book adaptation. It's also a pretty loyal adaptation. So, you know, ahead of its time in a lot of ways as well. Um, but just to kind of follow up on, yeah. on Ernie Hudson, I was just listening to uh, an episode of Leonard Maltin's podcast, Maltin on Movies, and Ernie was a guest. And he made a comment about how he's been doing a lot more theater things and how much he loves to do th- work on stage. Uh-huh. Uh, and he said yeah. that you know he wishes he could act on stage in, in theater and plays much more often. But the problem is the fact that you know he'll jump onto a play, but then he'll get a movie role and it takes months to do movies. He can't make the commitment. And more importantly, the right. movies pay much better than theater. Uh so you know what's yeah. your take on that? Too? I mean, if you had your ideal choice, would you rather be on stage or would you rather be doing films and TV shows?
0: Well, I mean, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Uh it's it's a very common feeling that that we actors have. Uh we, you know, our first our first love was theater or is theater. And um, you know, uh, were it not for the fact that uh the 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 pay is not as good as you can make in films we would probably do a lot more and there's a there's also a little thing called uh uh, residuals that um which are like royalties uh, that you get once you do some of this work on on television and on on film that that bring in uh an income to you for years after you've done the project and so um that's another reason why it does, it does pay more monetarily. It does pay more to, to do, uh, films than it does to do theater. Um, but you know, there is that passion that, um, a lot of actors have because they started in the theater and they still strive to do it and still want to do it. And, And it's the same with me. I, 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 you know, I would love to do more theater, uh, but sometimes it's just not economically feasible for me to do it. And when I do do it, I'm always thinking, well, you know, if I, if this particular project goes through, it's just like Ernie said, um, you know, I might not, uh, I might not, there'll be a conflict. I might not be able to do it. So uh, you're always kind of trying to juggle both things. Um, And uh, so what I, what I do is I try to, I try to get involved with like short-term projects, which are like readings, uh, theatrical readings. uh, 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 Those projects that are not real, don't have a really long commitment. Um, So that enables you to be able to, to do a little bit of the the theatrical side of it. Um, I have one coming up pretty soon. That is a reading that we're going to be doing on zoom. It's about a, um, it's about the formation of a the local eleven um uh, uh hotel union and it it's uh it's it's a really it's a fine piece that tells the story of how this union or not the union itself but how these employees were unionized and and uh, most of them were latinos uh and so they've they've dramatized it and we're going to be putting it on zoom and and it's a short term commitment so it's not something that you know is going to take a long time
1: so ultimately the theater kind of feeds your soul and the movie and film yeah. stuff feeds your wallet
0: yes yeah that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of what happens
2: trek untold will return momentarily trek untold is brought to you by triple fiction productions if you're a star trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves triple fiction productions has you covered Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise-E for your playmates' figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before.
3: Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live, and that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17, going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States with a five-year survival rate. That's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and can be hardly detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PANCAN is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PANCAN drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive you can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org thanks for your time
2: we now return to trek untold all right marco
1: so let's beam up into some star trek discussion now you first appeared in the star trek franchise from the first season in fact of next generation that episode is arsenal of freedom
0: That's right, yeah.
1: How did you get cast into TNG? I should actually ask before that, I should preface that, uh, had you been able to see any of the new episodes of the series yet, or had you had any interest in TNG? Well, no,
0: I hadn't. I mean, um, since, like I said before, I was never really a Trekkie fan, you know, I didn't think about actually seeing any of the new Generation episodes. That was the first season, as you said, and I believe the the episode that... uh, Uh, The first episode that I did was the fourth episode of season one. Uh, That was the um, the Arsenal of Freedom. And um, it was, I believe, the first. Yeah, it was, I believe, or was it the the Arsenal of Freedom was the Captain Paul Rice uh, episode. That was the first one that I did.
1: So, do you remember what the audition process was for it like then? And, you know, I specifically ask about that because these days with Star Trek Discovery and all the new shows, it's a very hush hush secretive process. But when you were auditioning for The Next Generation, did you know it was for a new Star Trek show? And what do you recall about that audition?
0: Yeah, well, I did know that it was going to be for the new Star Trek. Um, but as I said, it was the first season. So nobody really knew how it was going to compare with the original. And in fact, uh, as as I hear, some of the uh, original people that were involved with the the uh, original Star Trek were not too high on it yet. They didn't want to really associate themselves with it yet um, until, you know, it had a track record and had some success. So, um, you know, I was just called into the to the audition like uh, like any other show. And. Um, it was over at Paramount. Um, auditioned for it. And uh, I happened to get this one. So, you know, was able to um, uh, to meet the cast. And I didn't really know who they were because it was, I mean, the first season, the fourth episode, I guess uh, nobody really knew anything about it, that much about it. And um, I got to know Jonathan Frakes um, while I was on there. Uh, in fact, our dressing rooms were near each other and so he got to talking to me about the the uh, the new star trek and he was really high on it Uh, of course he's a regular so he was really really enthusiastic about being a regular on on something like that and was looking forward to a long run which he they weren't sure what was going to happen with it so it turned out ran for seven years so i think it was seven years that particular episode um was the like I said the Paul Rice uh, episode and it was just a brief scene and it's uh, interesting how uh you know how much how how um, how much publicity it got actually through the years I, I've gotten a lot of um autograph requests from people for that particular episode and as brief as it was that that uh series turned out to be you know in the long run quite popular uh and uh so it it spawned of course the the succeeding series uh the um the ones that followed after that which have been quite a few
1: yeah quite a few just to say the least yeah it's been going on for so many years now and uh you're also one of the lucky few folks who got to put on a starfleet uniform which i've heard differing opinions on and you're wearing one of the season one uniforms which are definitely a little bit more uh constricting i believe so uh do you recall how that uniform fit on you
0: um yeah they were um you know tight fitting uh, form fitting uh uniforms uh what i do remember was the uh, the pronounced the prominent shoulder pads that they had it made your uh shoulders look bigger than they actually were um but i think that was kind of a trademark um look that they that they started with cuz i don't think the original uh, Star Trek had that that look at all, um, so yes, that that's what I remember about that that uniform.
1: And as you already mentioned, your scene was primarily with Jonathan Frakes, and then a few moments later on that scene, you're joined by Brent Spiner and Denise Crosby. Uh, did you recall chatting yeah. with them much during that time?
0: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think I I uh, you know chatted with the, the cast members that uh, that were around that. For that particular scene. Yeah. I don't remember the substance of the conversation was other than the fact that uh, they were all new characters and, um, you know, they were, they were very excited about the series and and wanting it to be a, a success.
1: Yeah, the interesting thing about the TNG crew, especially was like, I heard when they were kind of first starting the show, uh, especially Patrick Stewart, he was taking it very seriously. Some of the other actors are maybe not, I don't want to say not seriously, but they wanted to have a little bit more fun with it. And then by the time we got to season seven, it was a much more loose kind of set. So, you know, here you are in season one and uh, how would you kind of describe the environment of the actors and how everybody kind of felt on set? Was it a kind of loose feeling type of thing or was it a little bit more like they're still kind of trying to find their way?
0: Well, I think it was, you know, like I said, the first season and they were still trying to adjust to, you know, they're, they're finding their characters. It takes a while to, you know, from my experience to, to begin to um, um, find the thread of your character and find out what, what it's what he or she is all about. And I think they were in the midst of that process. Uh, Jonathan Frakes seemed to me to be, based on the conversations I had with those that were around me, seemed to be the most excited, excited and enthused and serious about uh, this opportunity that he had. Um, and I, in fact, he I think he mentioned that uh, Denise Crosby, she was only, I think, on the first season. Yep. And um, she, it was, I think... Uh, a, a, it was her desire to try to want to move on to other projects and uh jo- Jonathan mentioned to me um that he 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 was really kind of befuddled by that because he he uh was excited about doing a series and a series that potentially could lead to uh to you know many seasons and so he he was uh, commenting that uh he could not understand it, how anybody would want to leave the series that that early. Uh, you know, he, he he was just very excited about the opportunity he got, I think, that he had.
1: Now, this episode is also notable because it's got Vincent Schiavelli. He's one of my favorite character actors, and he's unfortunately no longer with us. Passed away quite some time ago, sadly. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm wondering if you were on set any of the days that Vincent was there. I know you didn't share any scenes with him uh, in this production, but uh, were you there around when he was doing his thing or had you interacted with Mm -hmm. him ever on any other shows or films?
0: No, no, I, I did not. I was not involved with any scenes and the way they stagger their scenes. um, They're not always, the cast is not always present when your scenes are being shot if, if they don't involve them. So um, some of the cast members I, I, I did not meet. I think for that particular episode, I don't think I met uh, Patrick. Um, basically, that was the only scene I was in. So, whoever was in that scene, that was that was it. Those were the only people that I had contact with.
1: Now, when the episode aired on television, did you watch it?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. I, I watched it. Um, I was curious to see what how it, would it would compare with the original series. It, it was interesting because. The way it was being broadcast at the time was um, very much in the formula of um, how, how would I put it? Uh, they they didn't have a, a given I think time slot. They would they they could show it at various times during the week, and um, so you could you could see it like I think on a when I saw it, it was on a Sunday or something. But it wasn't like it was being shown at a particular time every week. Um, and that that I do remember but um, yeah it was uh, very slick it was for the time I mean you know some of the some of the optics that they were using and, and some of the special effects uh, c- compared to today of course are, are a bit dated but um, uh, for the time uh, you know they they were pretty slick in comparison to the original Star Trek uh, which, as you as you examine nowadays, as you look at it in retrospect, it's. Uh, I mean, it was some of these special effects were not as. <laughs> they were. They were a bit. They looked a, a bit hokey at the time, but um, you know that was before the CGI and all that took took hold. Of.
1: And we're about to jump in to talk about your second appearance in the franchise. But I do want to actually check out one thing because, you know, in this episode, you're not on the set of the Enterprise. You are in the next episode that you do. But uh, did you actually have a chance on that very first episode that you did to see the Enterprise Bridge and walk around on it? Or were you kind of just in that other studio? I don't remember, uh, actually, if I
0: actually, if I actually went on set. I know that we were shooting on one of the stages that had the, um, that had the, uh, ex, it, was, it was an interior. Uh, stage of course we were in the stage but they had they had it um uh, they had all of the uh jungle plants and everything in, uh you know in there to make it look like it was an exterior shot uh and that particular set was not I, as i recall was not near the the set where the enterprise was so i don't believe i actually got a chance to uh to check that um that set out
1: yeah but you definitely got a lot more time to check it out in your return episode which was from season four the episode of the yeah. wounded a very very good episode from that season and uh this yeah, time around yeah. you're spending a lot more time around the principal crew you're on the actual bridge as we mentioned uh so were you called back for this because they remembered you from the first season appearance or was this uh, another i don't you think did?
0: so i um i think there was a span of two years or so it was a fourth season or three years or something i i, I don't i don't really think so. Um, I think I was just—I just happened to be the right type that they were looking for, um, and uh, I have kind of like a, a craggy-looking look, a craggy-looking face, and I think probably they they looked at that and said, "Well, we can probably augment or build on that with this new character." So um, that was the first season that that featured the Cardassian uh, characters. In fact, I I uh, auditioned for not the Glintel character uh but which is the one i which is the one i got but i auditioned for actually mark alemo's part um like that the, uh, yeah Golma set and uh was kind of disappointed that i didn't get it but but after i saw the episode i saw mark and uh we had we we had worked together in fact subsequent to that we worked again together um and he uh he's a terrific actor and after I saw the episode, I thought, you know, he really, he really did a fine job. He did justice to the part. I thought he, I couldn't see anybody else playing that part.
1: I mean, that's why he is pretty much the iconic Cardassian because he went on to play Gul for all seven seasons of Deep Space Nine. So when you think Cardassian, he's the first guy you think about. He's the first guy. Yeah. But again, this is historically the first time that they've shown up on a Star Trek series, and it's really notable because the Cardassians went through quite a bit of a cosmetic change from your appearance to where they ended up going. Uh, you know, they have these bizarre mustaches, they have these headpieces, different kind of body armor that looks yeah. like it's basically a couch that was re- reupholstered by an abstract painter, I think. Um, but, <laughs> you know, What do you remember about the makeup process and the outfit process? Uh,
0: well, it was pretty arduous. I, um, they had pieces that they were already, um, I guess they had already been designed and ready to go. All they had to do was to uh, to, to uh, adhere or detach them to, to my face, or to my neck uh but the process did take you know a few couple hours at least to to do as i recall two or three hours to get that makeup on and um but it did restrict my neck movement quite a bit i remember couldn't could really you know twist my neck very well so um after uh, it was a pretty long day i remember after uh ten eleven twelve hours you you start to get pretty weary you know of it.
1: Yeah, I remember that yeah. scene in particular that you did with Kalmini where you're between him and uh, the other person playing a Cardassian and they're kind of having a little bit of a conflict and there's a tight shot of you yeah. and, you know, you're meant to be looking left and right at the people but you can't move your head so it's just the eyes darting left yeah. and right.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you couldn't really, you didn't have much play there or much motion on your with your neck.
1: Did that really uh, change or affect how you were doing your acting for this episode? I mean, did you have to make adjustments? No, I mean, I, 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 I think
0: you use that basically is what, what, happened i think uh you just whatever whatever uh, restrictions you feel uh i I, with any part whatever you're challenged with i think i i kind of try to integrate that into the into the character itself and not not let it become an impediment but rather let it become you know an asset and uh that's i think what happened with this particular character um although I mean, it was frustrating. I think the character himself was showed, showed that emotion as well. And what he was doing, his frustration at being caught. Uh, the, you know, uh, he was doing his job. He's trying to trying to get information on the computer and, and gets caught. And, and he, they also have been very, the Cardassians were involved in some kind of war with him. So um, there was also that feeling that uh, you're in the midst of the enemy still, you know. Um as that whole episode played out with um Bob, I think I, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. It's Bob Gunton. Uh Bob Gunton, he, something like that, yeah. Yeah, he had a he had a terrific part in that. And oh, yeah. Uh, and just the the entire trajectory of that episode uh was there was still quite a bit of uh friction between these two, the the these two races, these two group, groups of people. And so um I think that that uh, feeling was something that uh, was, I think I, I made it part of that character with the restrictions that I felt with uh, being restricted, restrained, uh, you know, by the, by the enemy, you know, um, and it became part of the character, I think. And, and it was a very brief and, you know, I, I, I don't make any, you know, let's make no, no qualms about it. I mean, I, I think, the the part was very small and very short. They say there are no there are no small parts, but this part was very brief, and I tried to make the best that I could out of it.
1: You know, I think he did this very memorable role, and again, it's historic because this is the first time Cardassians ever showed up. So that's that's pretty exciting. Yeah. You got to be a part of that, uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned Bob too because you know, I, I love his work, and this is such a standout episode because of his interactions with Kalmini. Um So I, I don't think you did. Yeah, any yeah of great Bob.
0: scenes. With him. Yeah.
1: I Don't believe you did any scenes with Bob, but uh, did you have no. a chance to be on set the days he was there working?
0: I only saw him in passing uh, but i I was not and he was like busy i guess getting ready for his next scene or whatever and i uh, I didn't want to disturb his his process or anything so um i I didn't interrupt it so I just saw him you know I had recalled or had remembered that he was uh you know a um part of the broadway cast for um, evita
1: and the original evita uh, yep
0: and so i know i you know he had that notoriety and uh, i i i remembered that about him and he's uh you know he's just he's a terrific actor and i was glad to be part of a show that had that featured him you know and i was still young at the time i mean i was i was like what year was this you probably remember this more than i do uh
1: 1991 but, yeah that episode was 1991
0: yeah. yeah you know i was still you know, I, I I had been acting since I was like uh, 25 or so, 24, but I still kind of felt like I was still learning the ropes, you know, and <laughs> and watching some, some uh, you know, veterans work uh, was, was really a treat for me.
1: And on the topic of veterans too, both of your episodes in Star Trek were directed by Les Landau, who did a lot of Star Trek and yes. did lots of other television. Uh, had you worked yes, with Les before? And uh, what do you recall about working with him and his style of direction. Uh,
0: I, I remember working with Les um, on another series that was done, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, it was done in, in Canada, and it was a, a short-lived, brief series. did not did not last more than a year, I think it was. I, I don't remember. I wish I remembered the name of the episode. I don't have the um, – if I looked up on IMDb, I could probably find it. But a- anyway, he, he, he directed that particular episode and um and i think we kind of remembered each other from the star trek um uh, episode that he directed but um to answer your question about his process um you know he's just just very very uh professional and um you know knows what he wants and uh you know is uh just ready and and um wants his actors to to bring what they can to to the part uh and um he's a very collaborative uh, director you know but knows how to work very quickly i mean as they all do i mean they're they're uh, especially those that work on television that's where they are they have to be very very fast
1: so the character that you played in this particular episode i think there was a little bit more to the character as opposed to paul rice which was kind of just meant to be this almost carbon copy of someone else that's in Riker's mind um, uh-huh. So for you, I mean, you know, I'm curious which one you enjoyed playing more because I would imagine that this Cardassian character has got a lot more meat to him, but you got to spend like three hours in that makeup chair. So, uh, you know, which one did you prefer playing? Uh,
0: well, I, I think the Paul uh, Rice character was, for me, the, the more, more interesting and the more um, the, the, the more fun character to play, I think, was was Paul Rice. And um, I... I I just saw that the other day because I knew I was going to do your, your interview and I, and I watched it and I, I looked at the, I looked at myself there and I, I said to myself, who is this, this young guy? I don't even recognize him anymore. <laughs> you know? uh, I was, if the Kardashian, Kardashian character was, uh, was done when in 91, this was done like in 80, what, 88 or something. I, I, I I'm assuming. So, so I was just a young
1: punk back then. I mean, I was only four years old at the time. How's that? <laughs>
0: oh, really? Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so did you ever audition for any other roles in Star Trek shows?
0: Mm, no. Well, actually, maybe I... Let's see. Yes, I did for Voyager. Um, I was uh, a- actually one of the final... Uh, f- one of the final uh, finalists, I should say, for the Chakotay. Chakotai character uh on uh, Voyager. So I did uh, I did audition for that. Um and and I did actually also audition for uh
1: the uh, Deep Space Nine.
0: Deep Deep Space Nine, DS9, yes. I auditioned for
1: that as well. Do you remember what the role was yeah. for Deep Space Nine?
0: No, I can't remember. Um all I remember was that uh, Lavar Burton was directing it because I went into to audition with him in the room and, uh, and that the scene uh, was with, um, was with Avery. Um, And it was, it was, uh, you know, it was a scene that was very, they were very, um, there was a nemesis. It was a, he was a nemesis of Avery, but I I can't remember what the, what the substance of the, uh, it's been so long, the substance of the scene or the role was.
1: So outside of Star Trek, you've had, of course, a very prolific career with so many more things. And uh, I want to ask you about a few other things that you've worked on. Uh, and, you know, we talked about Sylvester Stallone earlier in the interview. But another actor you spent a lot of time with, I'd mm-hmm. say, was Clint Eastwood. Because so you did uh, The Rookie with him, as well as Charlie Sheen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were also in Million Dollar Baby. And, but, and I want to talk about that. Yeah. Which, you know, by the way, uh, the scene that you're in is like one of the scenes I hate watching the most in that film. <laughs> it's just like one of the hardest ones to watch. And I had to, mm-hmm. like, get a screenshot mm-hmm, yeah. of your close-up. Because you get one nice close-up in that in that scene but I had to like rewind it times to get it. So I had to constantly rewatch, you know, a uh, spoiler alert, uh, Hillary Swank hitting her head on that bench. And it's just so <laughs> traumatic. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm a big <laughs> combat sports fan I covered combat sports for quite some time before doing this sort of thing. So I love hearing about boxing films and how they mm-hmm. get made. So, uh, you know, talk to us about working with Clint, uh, especially in this case, a million dollar baby. Uh, and just what it's like filming with this kind of a fight scene going on. Um,
0: well, with a uh, million dollar baby, that was uh, the second uh, time that I'd work with Clint. Um, and the thing that stands out about, first of all, about working with Clint Eastwood is the ease with which he's is, uh, with, with which his crew carries out their 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 work. Um, I don't know if you're aware of that, but he's known for very few takes, for bringing films under budget and under under budget, and um, just knowing exactly what he wants and being very just a very laid back uh, person, not to be not to be. Uh, misinterpreted as a person who doesn't care about what he's doing he he is very you know very professional and very uh just very precise about he just knows exactly what he he's looking for looking for in his in his actors as well so he casts accordingly and um and I think he casts based on the the the, the confidence that his actors are going to do their homework and they're going to uh, bring a a fully tri dimensional character to to the set uh which is what i did with uh with every every part that i played in any film that i've done with him um uh, even if they were not really big parts like like the um part in the million dollar baby um i went and i i did research with um you know other boxers and uh i went to a a boxing gym and watch them and I had conversations with them and I I learned a lot about because I'm not really a boxing fan I wanted to know exactly what they do in the ring you know how the, what what their how they behave what their action is and uh, so as a second which is what I played in this uh, in this film um, I knew it wasn't going to be a, a, a really you know big part but I wanted it to be believable because I know that that's what, what Clint was looking for. and um, had a great time working with him. As it turned out, I was responsible for her death. So, <laughs> so
1: yeah, not, not so fun to watch.
0: <laughs> not so fun to watch. I know. So yeah, that's, that's what I remember about, about Clint.
1: And this film is also directed by Clint too. And I don't think I've yes. spoken to anybody who's been directed by Clint. So uh, how is he on set when he's in that kind of a role?
0: Um, well, he, like I said, he's surrounded by a lot of very apt and, and, and competent, capable uh, people in his crew. And so, you know, he, he delegates, in a in a great way. I mean, he's his cinematographer and his, all the people that work around him know exactly what their job is. So, and the style that he's looking for. So uh, that makes his job a heck of a lot easier when he's acting there, I would think. I mean, I, I can't speak for him, but I think that's, that that helps his melpazo production company is 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 just a very uh, uh just a very professional company and um uh, he likes to work with with people that he's worked with before
1: and i want to move on to something that's a little bit more uh, comedic also and i'm still got to get to finally talk about this film with somebody so you were also in high school high with john levitz and tia carrera i'm a big yeah. big john levitz fan and you have got a pretty meaty role in this film too uh, uh-huh. so tell me about john lovitz i got to hear some stories about him <laughs>
0: Well, John Lovitz is John Lovitz. I mean, John Lovitz is what you see when you when you see him. That's the way he is in real life. You look at him and he just has this comedic way about him that you you just want to laugh just when you see him, Um, which turned out to be kind of interesting on the set, uh, because I recall one scene that we had in the meat i think it was a meat locker or something we were in some refrigeration room there with louise fletcher um and um we were threatening somebody i I don't remember who exactly i think it was um uh, michael somebody i can't remember the, the name anyway he there was a scene that was supposed to be very intimidating and um John Lovitz makes a crack and they're looking at each other and they couldn't get beyond the scene. I mean, there was just, they couldn't get past this one moment because every time they looked at John, they would crack up. Louise couldn't keep a a straight face because she would look at John and just crack up. Um, but that's the way it was on that shoot. It was one of the, one of the more uh, fun shoots that I've been on. Uh, you know, uh being on, on dramatic movies, it it can kind of get sort of intense. But this film was very lighthearted, very, very comedic. Uh working with first-time director uh Hart Bachner, I think Bachner, I think it was, is his name. Uh it it he was very, you know, very open to to anything you brought to it. And and he was uh, just a pleasure to work with. I think everybody on that film was a pleasure to work with um john was just just uh he's he's an amazing comic the guy can just like i said you know he doesn't have to do much to make you laugh (laughs) you know
1: and i'm so glad that you brought up louise fletcher also because i think at this point uh she was already kai win in star trek deep space nine i don't know if you were aware of that as well but she had a very uh very good recurring role in the series basically from i think season middle of season one all the way to the end
0: oh wow okay yes in fact yeah now that you mentioned that the a couple of times that I did see that show, I remember
1: seeing her. Yeah, and she's just such another another one of those great, amazing actresses. I'd love to spend some time chatting with her too one day. Uh, she's done so many amazing things.
0: Oh well, yeah, and in fact, I I think back on one of the on on her Academy Award winning role, which was one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, that that's an iconic uh, part in that that movie. And so yeah, it was it was a pleasure to be able to work with with her on this film quite a change up from <laughs> the dramatic the dramatic parts that uh, she was used to playing i guess yeah
1: so marco you know looking at your resume looking at your imdb page especially and some of your roles throughout your career it's basically been like two type of roles you played and especially early on for the most part it was like the criminal or the thug or the bad guy the generic bad guy mm-hmm. uh, and then other times i've also seen you playing a lot of authority roles You know, you'll be detectives you'll be police people uh, a lot of times military roles. But again, so often we're seeing, you know, especially in the 90s, 80s, Hispanic actors are portrayed as the criminal, the bad guy. And mm-hmm. uh, this is not anything we haven't heard before from other actors uh, who are people of color. They've kind of said the same thing. There's always this stereotype role that they've had to deal with and they have to fight over the years. Case in point, I would have loved to have asked you about your Seinfeld episode, but that's looking back on it pretty horribly racist. So I don't want to go there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, what's it been like for you as an actor to be trying to come up in this industry and really having to just swim upstream this whole time to try and find roles that aren't just these horrible stereotypes?
0: It's like I said, it, it has been a challenging um, thing to try to to try to deal with and, and overcome. But at the same time, I've tried to maintain a healthy uh, perspective throughout it, uh, because, you know, you, you want to work and you want to bring the best that you can. So even within the restrictions of that stereotype, you, you want to take every opportunity to flesh out and to, to create a, a, a real, um, you know, live human being. Uh, and I think that, um, that's what's that that's what's at the crux of the, of the, of the problem. I think is that even is with a stereotype, you're only seeing one side of one side of it. And, um, when you say bad guys, uh, and being portrayed as a bad guy through most of your, your career, uh, yeah, that can get, that can get kind of monotonous after a while, especially when you're only seeing Hispanics portrayed that way. Uh, but within that, but within that, uh, that genre of character, I try to try to instill some kind of humanity and some kind of sensitivity to the part itself, uh, so that people see that you know what he can be a bad guy, but he 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 is a human being. He has emotions. You know, he's he's real. So I, I've I've tried to I've tried to channel. Let's put it that way. My energy in in a positive direction. Because, you know, it, it, you're not going to you're not going to change the system overnight. It's been systemic. It's been that way for a long time. And although we've made some strides, um, it's been an uphill climb. I mean, look at look at the Academy Awards, look at the Golden Globes, look at, uh, you know, even this year, how many how many Latinos were were, were nominated or were even considered, you know, um, and. You, you know although although they're looking at it uh globally now um i think the latino u.s born here in the united states has had a particularly um challenging uh, uh challenging situation uh because he he is he's trying to he's trying to make an imprint he's trying to make a uh he, he's trying to 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 make a, a, an imprint to show that he's more than just part of a subculture, that he is part of the United States. He's part, he is, he is an American, you know? So um, I I hope I answered your question. I mean, I, I, it's just been a, it's been challenging, but I've tried to make it as positive and as, as, uh, uh, as possible throughout my career, you know?
1: I mean, from my perspective, it's one of those things that kind of starts at the top, and it's all about the producers and who's making these films yeah. and who's making sure that things change. So
0: very much so, yeah. You know, as and and you, when you don't have, <clears throat> when you don't have those kinds of positions of power, uh, you know, historically, you know, you're not you're not in a pos- producer's uh, uh, position or a director's position or those that that control the 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 wheels of uh, of power the way that the industry works it's kind of hard to to get your projects done you know but um but i've had it you know I, they've been far and few between but i you know i've had a few moments there that um with nondescript roles that uh, happen to be hispanic yes but that that's not the central uh, that's not the central uh, main um characteristic for the character and um you know, I, I I recall one great uh, part that I had, which was for American Playhouse for PBS that was, uh, and the earth did not swallow him. That was a, a part about migrant workers um, during the 50s, and it shed a lot of uh, light on their dilemma, and um, in fact, not a whole lot has changed between the 50s and now in terms of the, the plight of the migrant worker, but um, I, I just thought it was a great opportunity because it it showed the humanity of these people, which are so often portrayed as people that, you know, these soulless people that, uh, you know, they they don't they don't have aspirations, they don't have the same kind of human emotions that uh, those from um, the mainstream society might. Um, but they're portrayed as real human beings, so. Yeah, like I said, I've had those opportunities now and then, and yet they haven't been projects that have achieved a lot of notoriety, per se, but they have brought me some very rewarding experiences.
1: You brought up a great point about having these characters not be defined by their ethnicity uh, and making them into these fully fleshed out three-dimensional characters. But, you know, representation is something that matters. And if you look at the lens of Star Trek, for example, with this matter, and this actually goes hand-in-hand hand also with Asian actors in Star Trek, there's so yeah. few of them. Uh, and, you know, I imagine it's, it's maybe endemic of what the industry was like in the 80s and 90s. Uh, but here we right. in 2021, have things really gotten better? Have things improved, would you say?
0: Yes, I mean, I think definitely they have. Um, they haven't gone gotten, gotten as far as as I think uh a lot of us would would like it to be, but compared to what it was when I first started uh when I first started, I mean it was like I look at some of the stuff that I did you know the early stuff I did uh and in retrospect, I see that and I go like wow i mean that's 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 pretty stereotypical stuff, and um although you know it it kind of morphs into. You know, the old Westerns were the the bandidos and that kind of morphed into the narco, uh, narco traffickers and uh, so forth. So they just kind of changed the label and the title. But uh, you are beginning to see you are beginning to see a few strides here and there with with some uh, projects that that are very worthy, you know, worthwhile. Um, I would like to see more of those and, and, and more in the mainstream, not just in the independent. You know, feature realm, and more series television. I mean, I I think it's still it still leaves some something to be desired. I mean, I'd like to see more Latino characters that just merely are are like the Modern Family that you see on some of these shows that just simply show them as a (laughs) a middle class family that you know just like anybody else they don't necessarily have to be policemen and detectives and you know and uh, you know always always uh having to do with that genre but just as regular people i i th- i think that's the leap that we need to we need to really catch up we need to really make make that leap
1: you know and i want to point out that this isn't just preaching you're definitely being part of the change to make it happen cuz i know you've been involved for quite some time in a lot of youth programs I'm uh, bringing more theatrical programs to a lot of inner city youth, and I guess I'm, I would imagine specifically to a more Hispanic youth. Uh, so I, I know for mm-hmm. a while you were involved with the uh, East LA Classic Theater and Arts United program. Uh, I, I don't know if that's still a thing that's going on, but uh, past few years, what have you been doing to kind of help the next generation of actors come up?
0: You're right. I mean, I, I I've, that's been kind of a, a soft spot spot in in, um, in my heart. I mean, and I think it goes back to uh my early years as a teacher because I I, I I don't know if i mentioned to you i, th- I may have that uh, i started out as a teacher fresh out of college i i was teaching under the bilingual uh, uh program in the la unified school district and from there i got into acting uh, so i've always had kind of this this soft spot in my heart for for teaching and uh, you know being an actor has given me given me a whole new way of approaching it. And uh so through the years, yes, I I have been involved um off and on, in between projects and, and so forth, with um a lot of worthy uh, causes and a lot of worthy um organizations, nonprofit-wise as well, um that have that are dedicated to uh teaching young people uh in in schools, uh, a lot of them in in the uh, alternative schools that uh, are at risk, and uh, just giving them a, a a new way of looking at learning, and that's what acting does. And so, that's what the East LA Classic Theater did when uh, I was one of the founding members of of that organization. I don't. I I've, I've been out of contact with them. For a long time, so I don't know what their status is right now. But um, when we first started it, it was to uh, it was to expose them to the classical canon literature that a lot of Latinos are are never exposed to Shakespeare and his uh, his canon works. And uh, and then um, from there, I often on have worked with um, an organization called About Productions. They have an educational program um, that is uh, really a fine program. They bring um, writing uh, skills to uh, alternative schools in the Los Angeles area. I work with quite a few of those schools um, in the last few years. Um, I'm not currently active with them either, Uh, but it it, it is a great program um, because they what they do is they uh help these kids uh tell their stories of their experiences in their neighborhoods and their families and script them and then they're performed with professional actors uh as well so uh it gives them a taste of what it's of performance it's very interdisciplinary uh they're learning about reading and writing and um expressing themselves and uh uh, a lot of these uh, students that it took have taken these residencies or these these classes that we've taught uh, go on to um, to be very productive and, and have actually careers in in production as well. So um, and they look back fondly on these on these experiences as having been a very uh, you know a, a, just a, a very um, what do you call it a, a very um, crossroads in their development and in their career so um, I'm very proud to have been a part of that as well and I did also develop another uh, program in the Pasadena area called uh, Dejando Huellas which is a in Spanish uh, translated means uh, leaving a mark essentially leaving footprints for somebody to follow you that's Dejando Huellas Um, it was done through a community church in Pasadena and uh, I offered classes uh, for free, and uh, we mounted a production, a couple of productions there, and uh, brought in people from the community to watch these plays and uh, gave them a chance to, to uh, perform, to act, and, uh, and just expose them to, to the entire theatrical experience. And uh, that too was, has been, through the years, very, very rewarding as
1: well. So, Marco, as we said at the top of the interview, you've been in over 100 films and television shows. Uh, You know, I'm not going to name them all because that would take us all another hour to get through them. Um, But, you know, off the top of your head, what do you think was your best day on a set somewhere? And what was the worst day on a set?
0: Well, uh, (laughs) yeah, there's been bad days. I try not to think about those.
1: (laughs) Spill some tea, Marco.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll start with the good days. I mean, I I think um, I, I think. the 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 good moments that I've had were I, I would I would note the experiences that I had with um, with Clint Eastwood as being uh, some of the the most fun and some of the most uh, rewarding and some of the most comfortable sets that you will ever be on are are Clint Eastwood's sets and um, I might mention in fact I, I I did one last film with him. Uh, It was uh, this last November, I did a film in um, New Mexico called Crime Macho, and uh, I guess that will be coming out at some point. I don't know with the pandemic and everything if it'll be theatrically released or whether it will stream first. I I don't know. But um, uh, So that that also was another great experience because uh, Clint Eastwood was directing. He's now in his 90s. So, yes, I would list. I, I would list any film that I do with him as a, as a really typically great experience that I've had, um, you know, bad experiences. Like I said, I don't like to dwell on those, um, I, but the, the, any, any bad experiences have probably been only because of the, the fact that you've had to rush through something so fast that you haven't been able to give your best uh you that you feel you have been able to give your best performance in um, so uh you know and and there are times where you know the chemistry is not right, doesn't work right, so uh, you, you, you know it, it, not every experience is gonna be perfect, so I'll leave it at that
1: <laughs> all right, so Marco, last question for the day here. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe?
0: What is the best thing? Oh, the best thing is uh, you're part of a huge family and uh, there's a lot of people that love you <laughs> and you'll always be part of that family. I think that's, that's a, even, if, even if you had a small part in it, you'll always be a part of it. It's a great family to be a part of.
1: Well, Marco, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Uh, You know, it's been really great actually just having a chance to go back and look through so many of the different roles you've had over your career, because your face has popped up in so many things that I've seen over the years. Uh, And no matter what the character is, no matter what the role is, you always blend into that part so seamlessly. Uh, And it really feels like it is a fully fleshed character and not just like a nobody, an extra on screen. Like there always feels like there's something substantial to the roles you do. So thank you so much for your work. And thank you for chatting with us today about your Star Trek appearances and so much more. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that was our chat with Marco Rodriguez, who, again, I want to thank for being willing to come back and chat with me, not just once, but twice to make sure we had everything. And you know what? I could easily do a third or fourth or fifth time with him because there's so much more to discuss in his career. Normally, at the end of my show, I have some kind of Star Trek related story, adding some more context to the episodes we discussed today. But this time around, I want to discuss some feedback I got from listeners who don't necessarily like hearing about racial issues on this show, and they'd rather we just stick with the Hollywood stories. But I hate to break it to you because, well, that's not going to change, because for many people, this is part of the Hollywood story. Star Trek is a series that's never shied away from addressing racial issues, as we've seen with many, many episodes in all of the franchises. And I'm not asking these questions to guests just to be some woke social justice warrior. I ask because topics like this do matter. And quite simply, many folks aren't exposed to that side of the industry, nor the struggles of professionals who had to work under those conditions. In the ideal world, the best person should always get the job, but when the odds are stacked against you from the start, how can the best person even have a chance? Art imitates life, so some stereotypes are harder to avoid than others, but it's those stereotypes that limit what some artists can do, and in this case, performing artists. The only way to shatter that glass ceiling is to be part of the change. For my part, I try my best to raise awareness about these issues in episodes like this since I never want Trek Untold to just be the white guy of the week series. Star Trek fans are a diverse group of all kinds of people from all walks of life, and it's important that everybody feels like their story is told. I never want to just focus entirely on race because these actors are not defined by that, but it's important to acknowledge and understand their background, and especially to see what has improved and what hasn't in Hollywood over the past 30 years. So this will likely be the last time I address this on air, but it won't be the last time you hear stories like this from my guests. To move forward, we have to acknowledge the mistakes of the past and ensure that they don't repeat themselves. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. And until next time, fortune favors the bold.
2: Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms. Is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.